Welcome to the Manor. Welcome to the Twin Terrors Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm Zool. Uh, <coughs> James. <laughs> Ass. <laughs> there is no James. <laughs> Only Zool. <laughs> Uh, okay, we have another fun and, and informative and insightful <laughs> episode. What do, you, what do you mean another? Special. We haven't done one of those. Special Halloween episode. Um, 2018 is the 50th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead. The, the the first movie in not one but two film series <laughs> <laughs> damn you copyright laws um uh so i've uh i spent last night uh watching the 40th anniversary dvd i spent last night in the graveyard with zombies were you coming to get barbara she smells because <laughs> she's been dead for 50 years now <laughs> You know, that's, that's, yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. (laughs) Because I've I've learned something really interesting, and I'm not sure what's going on with it, because it doesn't come out till next year. So anyway, uh, most of this information I'm going to go through here is from the 40th anniversary DVD. So the movie was released October 1st, uh, 1968, uh, with a budget. Yeah, yes, and uh, was filmed uh, in and around Evans City, Pennsylvania, about 30 miles north. Had a budget of uh, about $114,000. To date, it has earned $89 million in the U.S., and I think about another $30 million overseas. Not too bad for a horror movie with a budget of 114000 No, no, it, it earned like between twelve and $15 million in the first decade. Yeah. And it, I think it's supposed to be the most profitable horror film because of its ratio of cost to profit. Yeah. Uh, it was directed by George A. Romero. Uh, would be the first of his dead series. It was written, as I mentioned, by John Russo and George A. Romero. Produced by Carl Hardman and Russell Striner starred Dwayne Jones as Ben, the hero, Judith O'Day as Barbara, damsel in distress. <laughs> as, and as I mentioned, Carl Hardman uh, played Harry Cooper. Uh, Marilyn Eastman played Helen Cooper, his wife. Kyra Schoen, or Sean, uh, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that, played Karen Cooper, their 11-year-old daughter, uh, who had been bitten by one of the ghouls and later on turns into a ghoul and kills well, she doesn't eat both of her parents, but she, <laughs> she she finishes off her father and kills her mother with a, a garden trowel. Oh, by the way, uh, I do want to thank you for using the term ghoul, which I know we'll get into later. Yeah, I do. I do talk about that a little bit here, or we'll talk about that. Keith Wayne as Tom, Judith Ridley as Judy, the aforementioned Russell Striner played Barbara's brother, Johnny. William Heinzman played the cemetery ghoul, the, the first one that you see in the movie, and Bill Chilly Billy Cardill played himself uh, and and most if not all of the production team also had roles in the film eastman was uncredited but she did makeup effects most of them were just small roles either as ghouls or members of the posse scene later in the film rudy ritchie gary striner gary striner was a sound engineer vince servinsky production director he is the one that fires the shot at the end that kills the hero ben spoilers uh, <laughs> yeah spoilers Regis Servinsky did the special effects. They they talked about 
how good his squibs were. I think the squibs that they used for the for the gunshot effects on the on the ghouls. Romero even commented that later on, when he went to go work in Hollywood, there would be an issue with the squibs. They'd have to do three or four takes because the squibs wouldn't go off. So until they got the squibs to go off, they'd have to keep reshooting the scene. He said Regis Cervinsky's squibs never failed. They worked every time. So he never had to go back and reshoot a, she- a scene <laughs> where, where there were squibs going off. <laughs> nice. Another one was uh, George Cassana, uh, who was a production manager, but he also played uh, police chief McClellan, who was leading the posse. Some of the cast, Dwayne Jones died in 1988 of cardiac arrest. He was the uh, first African-American actor to be the star of a horror film. According to uh, George Romero, they gave Dwayne Jones the, the role, uh, not for any political or social reasons, but because he was the best actor any of them knew. Uh, they wrote the role of Ben for, uh, they just, you know, they didn't have particular ethnicity in mind. So they just wrote the role. And they, and they also didn't really give any thought to hiring a black actor uh, because their production company that they were that they had that was making commercials and industrial films in, in the Pittsburgh area, they had been hiring black actors for years. Uh, their company was called the Leighton Image. And I, this went back even before the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. They had been hiring black actors. You know, they didn't say, okay, we need an actor. He's a good actor. We'll hire him. Uh, the character of Ben was a trucker. He, he was originally supposed to talk like a tough guy, but Jones, uh, who, was, who was highly educated, was well-read, he, he pushed to have the dialogue reflect more of that and more of his own background. Um, so they went with it. They said, yeah, sure. And I, and I learned doing a little bit of research on him. He was an instructor of acting and literature at several universities all over the East Coast over the years. And uh, he was much loved by the cast and crew. And when Hardiman was talking about was talking about not only working with him, like the last time that he had seen him or talked to him, and uh, he, he started to get choked up. Judith O'Day played Barbara. She had done some acting around Pittsburgh before uh, heading out to California to try her luck in Hollywood. Shortly after she moved, Carl Hardman called her up, asked her to come back and audition for the, for the role of Barbara. After the movie, she kind of left acting, uh, got married, raised family, started or did have her own business for a while. She started acting again about 15 years ago, uh, mostly in, you know, kind of low budget horror films. She's in this project that's not supposed to come out until next year, I think. I found this on uh, Internet Movie Database. It's called Night of the Living Dead Genesis. And she's reprising her role of Barbara. Well, hmm, that'll be interesting unless she comes back as a ghoul. Well, that's, see, that's the, there are photos of her in character as Barbara. And it looks like a Barbara as she would be aged now. Well, that's not a ghoul then. No. I was thinking about this last night when I was watching the movie. So I was real, I I did, you know, the, the scene where she is pulled out of the house by the ghouls one of which was her brother, Johnny, because by that time he had been killed and turned into a ghoul and seemingly killed by them. You never see her get bit. You never see her die. You see her mobbed. My only guess is that they could say that somehow she got away. I don't know. I'm, I am intrigued by this. I, am, I want to see this movie when it comes out because I want to see how they resolve this. <laughs> Pulling a Glenn from Walking Dead. Maybe. Of course, then didn't he get his head bashed in? Well, later. But, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. But, yeah, I, I was always of the impression that she died, but apparently not. <laughs> and everything you read, that there were no survivors. Right. Yeah, because, again, Ben, ben is mistaken for one of the ghouls, so he gets shot by the posse. Um, if you've never seen the movie, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> 
Good timing. <laughs> Bill Cardill, Chili Billy, uh, he was a TV personality in the Pittsburgh area, uh, and he hosted a Saturday evening horror movie show called Chiller Theater. That's where the name Chili Billy came from. Uh, he talked about uh, his few scenes in the film uh, where he plays himself as a TV reporter. He, he said that he left the TV station around 3 a.m. after finishing that week's show of Chiller Theater uh, with the breakfast and got to the set around 7 a.m. wasn't until 4 p.m. that day. It was a Sunday. So it wasn't until about 4 p.m. Sunday that Romero finally came up to him and introduced himself as they were getting ready to do the scenes. <laughs> You know, you're busy. I'm the yeah, director. Man. Yeah. I got stuff to well, do. and that, that's, that's how films work. <laughs> he, he took one of the TV station cameramen with him. And I, I'm assuming this is the guy that is in the shots with him that's holding the, the camera. While they were on the set, they filmed some of the background stuff just from a distance. Like the next week or so on Chiller Theater, he revealed that, you know, they were filming this movie. That, and it was going to be, it was, it was being filmed in the Pittsburgh area and it was going to be released. And they showed some of this footage on Chiller Theater. I, I don't know if, if a copy of that broadcast is around. Uh, it would be really interesting to see. That would be interesting. Yeah. So there's a, another aspect of Pittsburgh television that also relates with, uh, well, doesn't really relate with the show, the movie, but it does relate with George Romero. His first work was filming shorts for Pittsburgh public broadcaster children's series called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. I actually, when I, I lived not in Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania, but I lived close by for several years, we would go up and check out children's museums with my daughter. And they actually had an exhibition on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was really neat. It's very cool. Cool. But it yeah. just seems weird going from Mr. Rogers to uh, Ghouls, <laughs> yeah. which, which kickstarts your horror career. And you go to do things like Season of the Witch and Creepshow, which we've talked about before saw season of the witch and the list of movies that Romero made. And I'm like, you know what? I remember hearing about that and I've not seen it. I should I've not seen it for, I don't know how long, like forever, but I did see it and it's really good. I like it. That's yeah, why I picked I, in I need... creep show out of the whole list of things he's done. <laughs> <laughs> Kyra Schoen or Sean or whatever. Uh, she was 11 at the time. Uh, like I mentioned, she was the daughter of Carl Hardman. Um, and she was a fan of chiller theater. What it was, it was, she talked about on the on the documentary, she she woke up one morning and it was a school day. So her mom came in and she's like, you know, you need to get up. And, and you know, she just thought her mom was trying to get her out of bed to go to school. She didn't want to do. No, they apparently they wanted to cast her in the movie. Uh, and inter interestingly enough, like I said, she's the daughter of Carl Hardman. Um, Eastman was her godmother. Hardman and Eastman at some point eventually married. William Heinzman, uh, who I mentioned, was the uh, the ghoul in the cemetery. He was an investor in the movie. And like I said, he's, he's the ghoul in, in early in the movie when Johnny and Barbara are in the cemetery and Johnny's going, they're coming to get you, Barbara, you know, trying to scare her. He said his zombie walk came from having seen the Boris Karloff movie, The Walking Dead, uh, which apparently is not a zombie movie. So you had the Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman were the president and vice president of this company called uh, Hardman Associates, uh, which made local commercials and industrial films in the Pittsburgh area. Romero started The Latent Image in 1961 with Russell Striner, although uh, some college friends, John Russo, who was the co-writer on the film, and uh, Rudy Ritchie, who I've mentioned was also part of the film, they were also involved in The Latent Image. Image 10 was the production company that was formed when the guys at Leighton Image decided they wanted to make the movie. So they got together and everybody invested. This group of 10 people invested $600 each to come up with a budget of $6,000. 
which they thought was going to be enough to make the movie. <laughs> As I've mentioned before, it was $114,000 by the time the movie was finished. <laughs> so they, um, they were off by a good bit there. Uh, so John Russo came up with the initial idea, the, the whole thing of starting out in the cemetery, flesh-eating things, but he actually had envisioned them being as aliens. Romero had written a story that, in his words, was ripped off from a Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend. And if you've and, ever seen the movie with Will Smith, it's an okay movie, but it has such little and similar with the actual story, which is fantastic. I, and I've not read the book, but I definitely, it's one I need to. I, sometime over that Christmas break, and, I, and they filmed, let's see, I'm guessing it was around Christmas of 67, Romero came up with the main part of the story using some of Russo's ideas. Well, the to, original idea was going to be a comedy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be a comedy horror originally. And they, they, uh, Romero came up with the story up to the point that the character of Ben is introduced. Um, so he did have these people attacking other people but he didn't really have a real reason for why they were doing it and he you know he brings the story back and russo says well why not make them reanimated dead and then you can use that flesh eating angle that i was going to use with aliens never in the movie are they referred to as zombies they're they're this is not a zombie movie no they're referred to as ghouls and i don't think romero ever refers to them in any of his movies as zombies no he he likes to think of zombies as the original sort of voodoo yeah he kind of stayed away from you know calling them zombies you know and that's why i i mentioned that there there were other zombie movies um i know bela lugosi did one called white zombie which if you're into metal that's where rob zombies band got their name and this is actually when asked about zombies romero even says those are the guys doing wet work for bela lugosi yeah <laughs> You know, I've still never seen White Zombie. I haven't either. The band and, live or the movie. It, well, I, yeah, I wasn't going <laughs> to. <laughs> so if they're not zombies, I know he calls them ghouls. Yes. But, I mean, a ghoul is, is something kind of different, too. So a ghoul is an evil spirit that eats dead bodies, yeah. but it's not a dead body that eats the living. So what kind of undead do you actually think these are? Um, I don't know. Because I, I tried to find it. I looked around at all the different ones. I don't I saw ghouls and evil spirit. Whites are sentient. Revenants was the closest one I could come up with because they're animated corpses that come to cause terror and destruction on the living. But they also can be intelligent like the Dwarger from Norse mythology. So I think it's a brand new sort of breed of. I, you know, and, and that it's, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you can't say vampire because usually when you think of vampire, they feed predominantly on blood, but I don't know that that's an exclusive thing. I don't, I then some of the more Eastern European myths, I don't think it is. I, I think they actually can eat the bodies and some of them aren't intelligent. Some, yeah, they, they're a bit reminiscent of the, the more vampires or vampires that lost their, their cognitive skills from being buried too long. Yeah. Now I do know in, in Romero's movies, it was radiation from a, satellite that re-entered the earth's atmosphere that reanimated the corpses so i you know i don't know i think i do think i may be saying that they are a new breed of undead monster is accurate I, I don't think you can really pin them down as something out of folklore i'm good with that yeah you know it was interesting when i was i was doing a little research on judith o'day she talked about that may have been marilyn eastman one of them was talking about zombie movies or or this maybe this genre of movies whatever it is they didn't like the more modern movies where the zombies move 
fast, where they can run fast. They liked more of like what Romero did, where they shambled along. One, they said it made more sense because they're a corpse. So, you know, it made more, it made more sense for them not to move that fast. Now, they, they did specify that the movie 28 Days Later. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. I'm, where they, okay they, they're not technically undead. It's a virus. They've just pretty much lost their mind. They're, they've lost their cognitive ability, and they are attacking and feeding on. They basically turn into a mindless cannibal, but they're not reanimated dead. Which still is odd, because I don't know why they don't attack each other unless the virus recognizes that as tainted meat which that may be yeah that's i just have to sometimes fill in the plot holes myself and be happy so they filmed the movie and they finished the movie they filmed it at a farmhouse uh, mostly at a farmhouse uh the scenes in the basement were actually filmed at the latent image offices in the basement uh because the they're it was a basement (laughs) it was a basement just not the basement at the farmhouse i'm not even sure there was a basement at the farmhouse from what they've talked about in the documentary and in the the commentary and and the house was the house was scheduled to be demolished and they 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 found the house and hey you know if you guys are going to tear down that house why don't you let us have it and we'll tear we'll we'll kind of do some of the demolition for you but there was no running water and when they first started and they were staying at the house Servinsky had to actually, after a while, uh, they had to refurbish the kitchen so that people had a place to eat. That was the first thing when they came in. I think Marilyn Eastman said that she, she told him, she said, that's the first room you're going to do so that we can feed everybody. They had to get the, the water running so that because they were literally having to take buckets of water up to the toilet so that they could flush it. <laughs> <laughs> but it wound up, I think, being de- uh, demolished, which is kind of a shame. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd because love to go... Yeah, uh, there's another house that you see later in the movie when they show the posse going around and and, and uh, hunting down the the ghouls. They actually went back to that that road and that house is still there. So or, or was still there 10 years ago when they did the 40th anniversary stuff. Uh they headed up to New York to uh to see about getting a distribution deal. And as they were driving, they heard on the radio that Martin Luther King Jr had been assassinated. That I think that was when it just kind of first hit them their main hero was black and he gets shot by a all-white posse yeah uh mlk was assassinated april in 68 and yeah and yeah the, 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 there's a bunch of racial tones in it even though i don't think there were supposed to be but. yeah they didn't um they didn't intend for that the character ben was collarless and they outside of changing his dialogue so that he spoke a, a little more er, erudite they they didn't really change the personality of the character any no, he's a, still a angry-ish yeah. truck driver. Yeah, and they, but see, they didn't, they weren't thinking of, you have this, this black guy who, because of some of the civil rights stuff that was still going on in 68, 67, 68, that he would be angry. And it just, it worked perfectly, even though that was not the intention. That wasn't what they were going for. They weren't even thinking about it, you know. It's, it's interesting to see how other people will put things in there. They, I've, yeah. I've seen people talk about how he was the only one who could manage to do this because with all the paranoia that a black man would have to have to yes. survive in this type of environment where you're still, mm-hmm. that he was ready for this type of thing and could easily take over and do what he needed I've only seen this listed once, so I don't even know if it's true. I guess they were thinking of redoing the ending too, so Ben would live. And he oh. said, "He said no, I I should not live because he wanted it to resonate a little bit more with the black community. So he was thinking, he, he didn't want his character to be a, a rough, ignorant type of black man. He wanted to be a black man who's a man, you know, just right. And but yeah, he he thought maybe it would resonate a bit more. 
uh, Romero says that it was him and Striner who refused to do it. I've not heard that about Jones, but it also would not surprise me. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I could see either way. I, eventually, they made a deal with uh, Continental, which was owned by Walter Reed Jr. Walter Reed Jr. had inherited the Walter Reed organization. That company owned and operated theaters around the East Coast, uh, I think particularly in the Northwest or Northeast. It was originally titled Night of Anubis, Anubis being the Egyptian god of the dead. Uh, later on, they changed it to Night of the Flesh Eaters. And when they had printed the film, that was the title that they had put on the print. The Walter Reed organization said they couldn't use that because of a uh, 1964 movie called The Flesh Eaters. The Walter Reed organization came up with the, the, the title Night of the Living Dead and changed the title. They, they reprinted the film with the title Night of the Living Dead. When, when uh, the Walter Reed organization cut Night of the Flesh Eaters from the, the, the title frames Night of the Flesh Eaters and put in the new print Night of the Living Dead, they cut the copyright and didn't put it back in. That meant that the film was released and pretty much immediately went into public domain. Yes, in fact, it's done quite well on Amazon with all the downloads and VHS and DVD yeah. and everything else because anybody can sell. <laughs> now, apparently, there was a work print that still had the Night of the Flesh Eaters title that could have resolved the issue with the copyright. But guess what happened? I refuse. Okay. Make you tell me. At some point, the uh, the basement at the Leighton Images office where they filmed all these all the basement scenes, uh, they were using that for prop storage. That's where all the, all the commercials that the late image produced were stored. That's where the, the work print with the Night of the Flesh Eaters title with the copyright still intact was kept. All of the footage that was cut from the movie and editing, the basement flooded when, when one of the, was it the Mahingali, what, I don't know, one of the rivers <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Monongahelia? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah, you got to live there, but sure. That one, one, they said that one was the river that flooded, and it flooded their basement, and they lost everything. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. So Romero said that this was the scariest movie he's ever done, but he also said it was the scariest, it was the only one where he was actually trying to make it scary. (laughs) (laughs) So, and sometime in 1969, I'm going to, I'm going to read some of this, not necessarily reviewed, Roger Ebert the famous film critic, went to go see it. And he wrote an article about his experience going to go see it. He said he he definitely enjoyed the movie and said if he had actually been doing a rating, he would have given it three and a half out of four stars. But what he talked about was he went to go see it on a Saturday matinee in 1969. Everything I've always heard about these matinees, you know, these Saturday matinees in the 50s and 60s, kids a lot of times, they would go see these movies. Yeah, these kids matinees, and teenagers. There were a lot of teenagers. kids and teenagers to go yeah. see this. And they go see these movies from the 50s, you know, them. Uh, wasn't that the one with the ants or, you know, the Attack of the Crab Monster? You know, it's, it's these stupid sci-fi beef schlock horror movies that weren't, I mean, really campy. And, uh, you know, parents would, they'd drop them off, you know, and they could go see a movie for 40 cents a ticket and probably go see three or four movies over the course of the Saturday morning and afternoon. So the parents go, they dropped all these kids off. And that's what Ebert talked about was he went to this movie and there's all these kids, preteens, nine, 10 year old kids. This is from his article that he wrote back in 1969. Kids in 
the audience were stunned. There was almost complete silence. The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them. They were used to going to movies, sure, and they'd seen horror, some horror movies before, sure, but this was something else. This was ghouls eating people up, and you could actually see what they were eating. This was little girls killing their mothers. This was being set on fire. Worst of all, even the hero got killed. This movie revolutionized <laughs> the horror yeah, genre. First time the hero <laughs> died in the horror movie. Yeah. Now, um, on their, in their defense, though, the MPAA film rating system wasn't in place until a month later. Right. Yeah. So there's no way it could, it could have gotten an R rating. Nobody had ever shown this stuff before. <laughs> well, here you go. Context. Yeah. Woo. Hold on. I got a drink now. Okay. Me too, but I've only got water. So I was because everything builds on itself and we've talked about this so many times you're probably bored of hearing it but when this came out in 68 that was creepy you know everything was building on itself and of course you know like jody said the 50s and 60s you had some b awesome shows that kids young kids could go see and it wasn't a big deal right but everything built it wasn't that suddenly you know whenever the blob came in whenever vampires came in everything got a little creepier i mean quite honestly that little black and white snippet of nosferatu just kind of creeping in the doorway is still creepy to me oh yeah yeah it is there's suspense plays a lot into it there's a difference between horror and terror horror horror is more of the revulsion and disgust over something and and terror is you know more of that it gets it gets your hackles up can really seize you can, can really seize your heart <laughs> in a way. I, I will say that is, that is one of the things that Night of the Living does, does effectively. It is, it is terrifying more than later films that were more horrifying because they were more disgusting. Yeah, I think um, we've talked about that too, where we prefer more yeah, something something that's more terrifying or more suspenseful or more psychological in nature than a gore fest. Because, because, because a gore fest you can get desensitized to. And, and make no mistake, in 1968, Night of the Living Dead was equally disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it was both, but it does it does have a lot of that suspense in it. Well, yeah, you know, when you go from the the manic music of Barbara being chased and going into the house, and all of a sudden yeah. she's in the house, and the music just deadens. Yeah, it creates an atmosphere of uh, well, what the hell? You know, you are in there in the moment when she's being chased by the ghouls. Yeah, and you're feeling it, and all of a sudden everything just quiet and that can affect it too music plays a big role in that so some of the uh, some of the legacy of the movie max brooks who is author of the book world war z uh which i've not read and i've not watched the movie but i know it's another zombie kind of thing i've done both okay uh how were they not the same <laughs> <laughs> you know i've heard that <laughs> and not bad neither were bad neither were great okay. I, I enjoyed both for what they were. I will never read the book again, not because it wasn't good, but it was it was good. That that was it. It didn't really speak to me. And yeah, the movie was a decent zombie flick. It was the fast running, overtaking zombie things, but that was okay. Okay. Well, anyway, he, he said he saw the movie for the first time around uh, the age of 13 um, and didn't sleep for a week. <laughs> so so uh, the, one of the uh, Walking Dead producers Mm-hmm. Uh, she when she went to go see it, she also uh, it was a uh, Gail Heard. Uh, oh yeah, said she watched it through her fingers, <laughs> and, that, and that is like it still freaks her out. <laughs> yeah, uh, Max Brooks went on to say that quote 
uh, Night of the Living Dead for me wasn't just about horror. It also was about empowerment because you could stop them. You could shoot them in the head. So at least there was hope, uh, end quote. You know, that's one of the things that scares me about zombies. It's my theory that's going on with everything. Anything else, anything that's sentient can be reasoned with. You might not succeed, but you can try. You can talk to a vampire. You know, you can talk to all sorts of evil things, whatever. (laughs) But you can't talk to a zombie. There's no reasoning with it. There's nothing. And they're just over their multitude. And if you die, you become one. It's just, Mm -hmm. I disagree with Max on that, that yes, there is a way out. But then again, you can also shoot a vampire in the head and that will at least maybe stop him long enough to stake the fucker. True. Everything can be killed. If it bleeds, it dies. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess ghosts are maybe the exception. (laughs) They're already dead. See, They're perfect. (laughs) During the, the cemetery scene, Russo was talking about, um, I, I guess uh, at some point, not when they were filming, this was years later, but there was a, a tornado came through and hit the cemetery, the, the Evans City Cemetery, where they filmed the opening scenes. It, it literally pulled bodies out of their graves. He said there were about 200 bodies that were disinterred from their graves in that cemetery that had to, had to be reinterred. And he, he wasn't sure if they put them back into the Evans City Cemetery or not. Poor bodies. Yeah. This movie was the beginning of two film series. The obvious one is Romero's Dead series, uh, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, which was interesting because the zombies were starting to become sentient, or the, the ghouls, I guess, were starting to become sentient. Because there was one that he'd been a, they weren't sure what he had been in life, but he was standing there with the, with the gas pump in his hand like he was waiting for somebody to drive up so he could fill their car up. He was the one that figured out how to use a gun. Great. Zombies with guns. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Wasn't that awesome? And I know I've, I've talked about this in another episode. Night of the Living Dead also is the first movie in the Return of the Living Dead series. Because uh, in Return of the Living Dead, they, they reference Night of the Living Dead, the movie being based off of a real event and that the zombie bodies, ghoul bodies, that had been collected by the military had been shipped to this medical storage warehouse <laughs> or medical supply warehouse and forgotten about by the military. And that's where the first Return of the Living Dead movie picks up. So uh, there's probably nothing I need to add. Jody covered it pretty well. I, I do know that, you know, we talk about the culture quite a bit. Uh, the 60s were upheavalist time. Upheavalist? Yeah. Oh, fuck you, philologist. <laughs> um, you know, the, the 1950s, the whole leave it to beaver type of thing, that optimism had been, <laughs> that, uh, that had been declining since Kennedy was assassinated in 63. Of course, we've already talked about some of the race issues. And when you had Malcolm X a few years previous and Martin Luther King Jr. that year, being assassinated uh, but the, a lot of people will try to put this nihilistic image onto the film too thinking that it's about disillusionment of the government uh the the nuclear families falling apart or that the zombies actually represent russians trying to eat away at the american dream and you know i don't the, the, think that's it <laughs> I, I don't either I, the, the counterculture movement tried to put a lot of things on there i think romero tried to make a wonderfully horrid zombie well ghoul movie yeah yeah he wanted to make a scary movie and that's all he was really trying to do now that doesn't mean that all those issues weren't in a subconscious because that was the zeitgeist of the time i get it that there are glimpses of that in there and they do a wonderful job of making the inside of the house bleak yeah i don't think he meant to but it's it's interesting when you 
see things like that and read it. True, true. Now, he, Dawn of the Dead, he did try to make a point uh, about society and consumer culture, and that's why most of Dawn of the Dead is set in a shopping mall. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Day of the Dead had something similar, and Land of the Dead had something similar as well. So, yeah, I, I think later on he, he did try to put that kind of stuff into it. Yeah. Uh, so that's our episode on the 50th anniversary <laughs> of Night of the Living Dead. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't seen the movie, sorry for the spoilers, but <laughs> if you listen this far. You... <laughs> uh, so until next time, I'm Jody. And I'm James. Later. The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised I haven't said I'm Dave. <laughs> I'm Dave. I'm Zool. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're a lazy bastard. I've seen some of Karloff's non-Frankenstein stuff. The dude was great. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the mummy. Uh, just to kind of go off on a little sidetracker, Karloff in the mummy. I will not watch a mum, any mummy movie that he's not in, and he only did the first one, so I'm done after that first one. It's not a plot hole, assholes. <laughs> Eight melon, three, two. <laughs> you know, Romero was just kind of like, no, it's that'll be fine. That'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine for you, right, boy. <laughs> No, I am having a wonderful, uh, it's called Insurance Sucks, which is a rye brown ale from Centerpoint Brewing. It's a nice ah, cool. beer for fall. And since we're talking about Halloween stuff, I thought, yeah, I'm going to have yeah, that. Yeah, sure. You got well, more? Yeah, you kept talking. Oh. <laughs>